It's a pleasure to be with you, and I want to ask you this question just to get us started. If a member of your family turned out to be a cold-blooded killer after the person was charged and convicted and sent off to prison, would you stay loyal to that family member? Would you continue to visit him, and would you try to win his freedom? Now, that's not just a theoretical or rhetorical question. It's about a question involving a young lady who decided to do exactly that. Her brother turned out to be a killer, killed her parents, his parents too, killed some of his classmates in one of America's most notorious school shootings, the shooting at Thurston High School 25 years ago. And now the killer has exhausted all of his appeals, or almost all of his appeals. He's not been granted clemency, and he's been sentenced to more than 100 years in prison because the judge saw his crimes as bad enough that he should be locked up essentially forever. I'm talking about uh, a young man by the name of Kip Kinkle, who is a convicted killer. His sister knows that he is a convicted killer. And I'll say a word about his sister in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. And on this one, I might just get some naysayers who stand up for a convicted killer like Kip Kinkle. But uh, if you want to jump in, you can do it that way. Naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and find our Twitter poll, a brand new one every day. I'll tell you about it a bit later, at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter if you prefer. It's also on our website at LarsLarson.com. But let me take you back a little over 25 years, 1998, May of that year. And I remember covering this story in person. I wasn't just a TV anchor, a radio guy, but I was covering this story. And Kip Kinkle was about 16 kinds of bad guy. And many of the stories that have been done about him recently, in which, well, the ones in particular that have been inspired by his sister, finally coming out and making a public appeal on behalf of her brother. Now, I will tell you this, when I covered those murders by Kip Kinkle, both when he was accused and after he was convicted, the killings of his parents, both of them, his mother and his father, shot in cold blood, and the killings of two of his classmates, and the serious wounds to a couple of dozen other classmates, I considered that his sister, Kristen Kinkle, was not part of the story. I mean, she would be mentioned as a sister, but we didn't spend any time on her because I didn't think that was right. If you happen to be related to somebody who is a killer, uh, then that's not your fault unless you've participated. At that time, she did not. She was another of the victims. She lived because she was in school in Hawaii at the time, comes home to find her brother accused of a capital crime, one of the most unspeakable crimes ever, but not only shooting some of his classmates, a lot of them, 
but killing his mother and father in cold blood. Well, now she's decided to seek out the media on her own. She'd always refused interviews before, but Kristen Kinkle is now advocating for his freedom. There is a story uh, in the New Yorker magazine. It is the result of interviews that Kristen Kinkle, the sister of killer Kip Kinkle, agreed to do. In fact, she reached out to the reporter and said, I'm ready to talk about this now. And she is advocating for her brother's freedom. And in fact, she portrays her killer brother, Kip Kinkle, as a victim, a victim of his parents, a victim of the system, a victim of inadequate uh, psychiatric care, a victim six ways from Sunday, rather than what he truly is. And what a lot of the stories about Kip Kinkle that are being done now to, uh, 25 years later leave out is that this kid was bad news all day long. I mean, he had a history that reached back to throwing rocks off an overpass, which, as you know, can end up killing people. It didn't in this case, but that's what he did. He said he was angry. He, he made explosives and bombs and things like that. He got guns. His father decided to get him in. He was interested in guns, so his father said, I'll get you a rifle, but the rifle stays locked up. We'll go to the range. But he also decided to get a stolen gun from one of his classmates and brought it to school the day before the killings happened. And he got caught at school with the pistol, and the police were called. These days, the schools don't like to call the police, but they might have even called it in a case like this. He's taken to the police station. His father picks him up and takes him home. And at that point, Kip Kinkle became a killer. And he tried to make himself a killer in so many more ways than what he was convicted for. He shot his father in cold blood. He waited for his loving mother to come home and killed her in cold blood. Then he planted bombs inside their house knowing the police are going to come here after he goes to school the next day and shoots the place up and, and hurts people and kills people. He knows the cops are going to come to the house, so he plants bombs in the house to try to hurt or kill police. He even straps a or tapes a knife to his leg because he knows to a fair certainty he's going to be taken into custody. And when he is, and he's taken to an interview room, and they apparently hadn't searched him thoroughly enough, he took the knife that was taped to his leg off his leg, and he tried to murder a deputy sheriff who was the one who had him in custody. So... He's a bad guy six ways from Sunday. And yet his sister, I know, loving sister, we always admire it when parents and siblings stick by their family members. But in a case like this, four murder charges, his parents and two others at his school, two dozen attempted murder charges, he gets a total sentence of a 111.63, uh, 67, 111 and two-thirds years. And the judge said when he laid down that sentence, this is going to be longer than you are possibly able to stay alive. So he kills two kids. He kills his parents. He injures two dozen more. He plants bombs. He tries to knife a cop. And yet his sister stays loyal to him. And the result of this is she's out arguing that he ought to be able to get out. And he, she, she was frustrated. Uh, as the New Yorker points out, she reached out to the magazine for the interview this past spring. Her brother had lost multiple appeals, was turned down in a recent attempt to get a murder review hearing before the state parole board, and he was not considered for clemency. I mean, even liberal Democrats will say there are some people who are so bad 
We're not even going to consider giving them any kind of clemency. We don't want them out of custody. Apparently, his sister does. And yet, in the New Yorker piece, the picture of her is of her facing a wall. So, in other words, I can't let you see my face. I want my privacy. I don't want people to recognize me. But I will ask for your help. She'll appeal to the public to try to win the freedom of a convicted, cold-blooded killer like her brother. And I just, I, she is now part of the story as far as I'm concerned. She's fair game. And take a look at what she has done to try to attempt to win the freedom of a family member who turns into a killer, I think is just beyond the pale. It's shameful. And frankly, I wish the reporters, including the New Yorker who covered this, would put in more of the other pieces of information instead of just telling a sympathetic story about a sister who loves her brother so much that even though he's a cold-blooded killer, she wants him out of custody and back out in the community with the rest of us. Glad to get your calls on this Tuesday. 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first. Emails talk at LarsLarson.com. And you've got the Radio Northwest Network. Senator John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. The return of Portland school children to classrooms yesterday marks one of the only good things about the end of a ridiculous strike by unionized teachers. I say ridiculous because the labor union made demands for literally hundreds of millions of dollars that simply did not exist in the budget. I say ridiculous because the union's demand don't seem to benefit the kids one little bit. The union wanted more money and got it. That doesn't help your kids. The union wanted more prep time and less teaching. That doesn't help your kids. The union promised smaller class sizes that might have helped kids out a bit, but quickly they caved in on that and they compromised. The compromise keeps bigger class sizes but adds more pay for the teachers with bigger classes. So that helps out the union members, doesn't do jack for your kids. Now, after three weeks out of class, students have to cut short their Christmas holiday and try to catch up. By the way, that's on top of the catching up they're doing because the government school system routinely fails them. The catching up they're doing because of the pandemic and the shutdowns and everything else. And now more catching up because of an unnecessary strike. So schools that, by the way, have one of the highest dropout rates in America and one of the shortest school years anywhere. Schools that routinely see the majority of students fail to test proficient in the core learning subjects, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Except the schools will award diplomas to kids who can't actually read, write, or do arithmetic. But teachers who score big fat paychecks for part-time jobs. You figure that one out. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. Don't stop. 
I'm going to award today's Daily Grill based on something that our flagship radio station, and that's FM News 101 KXL, reported on. I was once a fan of the food bank. I thought, well, how can you go wrong? You're gathering up donations of food. You're giving it to hungry people. Except that the food bank has been politicized as well. I'm never giving them another can of soup. Listen to this. As families across Oregon, this is from KXL, prepared for Thanksgiving dinner, the Oregon Food Bank was posting on social media, on this day and every others, we commit ourselves to challenging and disrupting the colonial narratives, such as the myth of the so-called Thanksgiving feast. I seriously disagree. It was a myth. It was not. It's very well established. We encourage folks, except they use the term F-O-L-X, which I actually had to look up. Folks used spelled that way actually is a reference to LGBTQ rights. We encourage folks to use this day as a teachable moment for yourself, your communities, and your loved ones. Well, you got your virtue signaling in, and I hope an awful lot of people change their charitable donations to somebody other than the Oregon Food Bank. Our best email so far, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com, comes in from Guy. Lars, deer hunter wearing green face paint camo, accused of being racist against indigenous Martians. Crazy today, reality tomorrow. Thanks, Lars. Signed, Guy. To your calls, if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go to Matt, listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Matt, what's on your mind? Well, Lars, how are you? Quite well for a Tuesday. How are you? And I hope you had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving, and oh, thank I God for all our blessings. Thanksgiving, and I had a terrific weekend. Hey, listen, um... With Tim Kinkle, he he was a minor when he committed the crime, so it was so bad. And even though it was so bad, what he did, they don't execute minors. That is, and well, they, they don't in Oregon, Matt, but in 19 states, it is legal to yep. execute 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds who have committed a capital crime. And the U.S. Supreme Ooh. Court has weighed in on it. And the U.S. Supreme Court says you cannot, a state cannot execute a child who is 15 or under. So at the age of 15 or under, you're ineligible for execution. But in 19 yeah. states, there are laws that allow those to be uh, uh, children, I guess, if you want to say that. Well, 16 he, and he, 17. What, what should happen is he should be tried, convicted, and executed. No ifs, ands, or buts. But he probably won't be because he was a juvie when he committed the crime. And, and, in, and in these 19 states, even if you're a juvie, and you kill and you kill somebody, and then you become an adult in prison. But you were convicted as a juvie. They still don't. Um, they still won't execute you because they. That, that is they true. That, that's true. And Matt, the one thing you should add to that: Oregon, up until just a couple of years ago, would allow most of the most serious adult-level crimes, like murder and rape, to have a oh, child, a teenager, referred to adult court. That 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 is still technically a possibility in the law. It is not likely to ever happen again because the courts in Oregon are so liberal that they are going to keep most 16, 17 year olds in juvenile court. And that means that if they're only given a sentence uh, in juvenile, that means that yeah. when they are at most 25 years of age, they will walk yeah. out of custody and they will be able to say law they'll be able to say legitimately i have never been convicted of a crime and they'll be able to get because, jobs yeah because they were tried as a, as a minor and they always go easier yep. on minors well not only that but think about the, the implications of this matt you commit a rape a violent rape at 16 you're con, you're yeah. convicted in juvenile you go off 
to juvenile, you know, you're sent originally to a juvenile facility when you're 25 and you, sorry, 26, and you walk out of custody and somebody says, do you have any criminal convictions on your record? You can be applying for a job as a gym coach, as a daycare worker, uh, as somebody yeah, who works in medicine. Yeah, because you're a minor. Well, because because the law was changed by liberals. And that means that that convicted rapist, who's now lo no longer viewed as a convicted rapist, may be working with your children. Let's go to Sean. Sean, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hello, Lars. I just, you know, just listening to the last caller made me think that, you know, we really need to bring back, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. You know, you know the consequences of, you know, Right, you know, demonstrating right and wrong. You know that uh, there's going to be a penalty for what you do. You know what you're getting you into. Yep. So you know, you weren't crying when you committed the crime. Don't cry when you know you're serving the time. Well, I don't think he's crying. I think what's happening is he and his sister are working to get his freedom. He's been in custody for the better part of a quarter century. He should be held in custody to the end of his 111 years, or at least until he's too old to, to be able to come out and do harm. But the idea that his sister, who was a victim in the sense that her parents were murdered by her brother, her brother has brought shame and disrepute on the name. She's, she, she now does a national interview with a national publication, New Yorker, and won't even show her face. But now she's trying to use her ability to grant interviews to journalists to talk the public into being sympathetic toward her brother. And you know what I'm afraid of, Sean? People's memories fade. They say, ah, I don't remember Kip Kinkle. Who was he? What did he do? And as their memory of an event fades and the public memory of an event fades, it becomes more and more likely that at some point somebody will say, well, what did he do? Well, when he was a kid, he, uh, he killed some people. But now 30 years have gone by, or 35 or 40. And I wouldn't discount the possibility that convicted killer Kip Kinkle may walk out to freedom with the help of his sister, his aider and abetter, Kristen Kinkle. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Helping you know who to trust and reminding you of the principles this country was founded on. The world's going crazy and they lying to us. Don't know who to believe, so in God we trust. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to remind you that at the national level, we've seen plenty of examples of this, where the Department of Justice will decide to ignore outrageous things that are done by groups on the left, like Antifa and BLM, burn a city, loot the stores, commit arson, even commit murder, and for the most part, the DOJ ignores it. If you're a conservative, though, and you show up at a pro-life rally, and you get into a shoving match with somebody who's assaulting or a costing your child, all of a sudden you've got an FBI SWAT team on your front porch. But now this kind of nonsense seems to have percolated down to the local level. And I want to talk about one example in particular with Angus Lee, who's an attorney in both Oregon and Washington, and about the most recent prosecution by the Clark County prosecutor, Tony Golick. Uh, Angus, welcome back. Welcome, Lars. Thanks for having me. 
John Lee's a good friend of the show. He alerts us to stories. He's a political, I don't want to call him a gadfly, that seems like a diminishment, but he's a guy who follows the issues closely, and when he sees connections of different kinds in, in transit and a lot of other issues, he brings them to our attention, and we frequently put them on the air. So I've got a dog in the fight there. I know you, and I've got a dog in the fight there. What's happening to John Lee, and is he being prosecuted because of his politics? Well, it is clearly a case of selective political prosecution. And you were right in your introduction when you talked about this growing trend of prosecutors being used to essentially determine who can be candidates in the future by prosecuting them for their campaigns that they ran in the past. And this is a uh, real break from tradition, uh, especially in the state of Washington. They're charging John under two statutes that I've researched and have found that in the last 112 years, there have only been three prosecutions brought and only one of them in the last century. All of them were reversed. There was never a conviction. So this is a statute that's never, ever used. And it's never used for good reason. But they're using it in this case. Why? Why now? And the answer is this is a selective political prosecution. That's why. Okay, so in this case, John Lee is charged with a criminal act of allegedly, uh, allegedly registering to vote and then as a candidate for an incorrect voter district. And, he, and that's a crime? The, the allegation is that John, who lived in Clark County, registered to vote in the wrong district inside Clark County and then registered as a candidate inside Clark County in the wrong district. And instead of just removing him from the ballot, they've brought criminal charges for that, which are wholly unsubstantiated. And here's the reason why. The reason this statute is never prosecuted criminally is because in order for a valid case to be made, the statute requires that the person not just file in the wrong location, but the statute actually requires that the person knew that the location they were registering in was absolutely wrong and illegal for them to register in. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of flexibility in Washington's law about what is or is not your residency. And we see this with candidates, elected officials all the time. You know, uh, Patrick Schiff in, in the U.S. House lives in Maryland, but he represents the people of California. Yeah, the guy so, has like a 600-square-foot condo in his own district, and he has a, a wife and, and multiple kids. And you say, well, they're not living in something smaller than a hotel room, are they? No, but he, he, he maintains an address but he actually lives in a very nice house in the state of Maryland, but he doesn't represent Maryland. I mean, Ron Wyden lives in New York City with his wife and three small children, and yet he claims to represent the state of Oregon as a U.S. senator, even though he doesn't live in the state of Oregon. Yeah, and so when the statute says you have to know that you can't possibly be a qualified voter in the district that you registered in, that introduces a state-of-mind requirement into the case and what that means is that person who's registering gets to look at past rulings from county auditors on voter challenges and the county auditors 
across the state have routinely denied challenges to uh, to to voter applications, saying, you know, we're just going to let the the people, the voters, decide whether or not you're really a resident. And you can have the campaign, and both sides can talk about where you live and where they say you live and where you say you live. And we'll let the democratic process sort it out. But here, they've gone way farther and decided they're going to file criminal charges. And here's the thing. In a statute that requires that you know what's in a person's mind, you have an obligation as law enforcement to ask that person the question, to contact them, and give them a chance to tell their side of the story. And the Clark County Sheriff's Office... They completed their investigation in secret without ever contacting myself or John. They knew how to contact him. They never once called him up and said, hey, John, why did you think that you could do this? And guess what? He's got very good reasons why he believed he could register where he did. So completely improper investigation technique as well. I mean, just to compare, Charlie Hales was the mayor of Portland for a time. He had lived in Vancouver for the previous three years. He didn't meet the requirements at all. They papered that over. Let him be mayor anyway. In this case, what do you suppose is driving prosecutor Tony Golick to go this direction? And and is it just a matter of personal, uh, you know, political bias? And by the well, way, I'll let him come new. on the show and, and, get, and tell his side, even if the police don't do, get John's side. I'll, I'll get Tony Golick if he'll come on and talk about you know, the allegation that Tony Golick is using this for political purposes. I want to know what's driving him. Do you have any idea? You know, we're very early in the case, and we're still exploring that. But it, it's hard to to look at something and not see some kind of unconscious, at least, desire to address this issue when it's never been addressed before. And here's the here's kind of the, the thing, the backdrop to keep in mind. It's unconstitutional to have a rule that you only apply one way. Oh, that's arbitrary because and capricious, then, right? Right. And because then the rule is not one of law. It's a rule of punishment. It's a weapon used to oppress the people that are that are opposed to you who aren't in power at the time. And we've seen this in Washington through our uh, public disclosure commission that manages campaigns. It's been run by Democrats for decades, and overwhelmingly it's used to hammer conservative candidates. And so now we're just seeing that trend trickle into the criminal process. Now, is there any way to go out? I mean, you're going to defend John in, in court, and he's coming up uh, today, but, but has he been in court already today, or is he coming into court later today? We're going to have court this afternoon, and then we will be mounting a very vigorous defense, and we will be focusing on the complete lack of an investigation, his actual innocence, because they can't show what they're claiming he did. Uh, because he didn't do it. He thought what he was doing was legal. He's got a very good reason for that. And this is a selective prosecution. So we're going to be hitting all three of those things very aggressively in this case. Now, in that case, let me ask you a quick question because we're close to the break. Can you call Golick as a witness about his motivation to bring a charge that has been brought in the last hundred years? He wouldn't be a witness uh, in the case. However, when we bring a selective prosecution motion, the burden will shift to them to explain why they brought this case. Unbelievable. That's Angus Lee. He's an attorney in Oregon and Washington defending John Lee.
uh, no relation, and, uh, and that John is accused of registering in the wrong district under a law, a criminal law, that hasn't been used in 100 years. We'll be back in a moment. It's a Tuesday. It's the Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest. Hey guys, for those. He's always lighting a fire under those who need it. You know who you are. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Our Twitter poll today, or X if you prefer, should we let teachers organize students in political messages aimed at attacking parents? Now, if you say, Lars, that's a stupid question. Nobody would ever do that. Consider this reporting. Seattle middle school teacher leads students in attacking parental rights groups, Moms for Liberty. Matt Margolis did the story. On Saturday, Moms for Liberty shared images of a package they got from a Seattle middle school containing letters made during class time attacking the parents' rights organization and accusing them of bullying LGBTQ youth. The package included a typed letter from Ann Christensen, a middle school social studies teacher, and gay straight alliance coordinator they included letters featuring rainbow colored messages the students were given some instruction as to what they wrote because you could tell that most of the letters were nearly identical one letter written in pencil reads dear moms for liberty stop bullying and excluding lgbtq plus youth and families it hurts people who they just want to love who they love and be who they are the oppressed are always the protagonists so should teachers be allowed to organize your children in putting out political messages aimed at parents who are simply trying to get the right to be parents and be represented in education? Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, I started off with Kip Kinkle. He is a convicted, cold-blooded killer, a murderer of four, who also wounded more than two dozen other people at his school, Thurston High School, in Springfield, uh, 25-plus years ago. And his sister is now advocating for his freedom. He is supposed to stay locked up for more than 111 years. Didn't really expect to get a naysayer, but Sharon, you're a naysayer, and I love naysayers on the show. What do you and I disagree about when it comes to Kip, killer, Kip, Kip Kinkle, the killer? I believe that he should be given a chance after 25 years to look and see if there's any repentance on his part, any any sorrow. I know that he he's never chosen to be interviewed because he didn't want to cause his victims pain. He's um I have known um, other people. <laughs> you and, bought and, that? Well, I do because I've actually known other people like that. And now, I'm, hold I'm on, hold on. The, he he says I don't want to be interviewed because I might cause my victims pain. Is it possible he doesn't want to be interviewed because he doesn't want to be asked, "Did you do it?" and "Why did you do it?" And I think if, if you were to ask him that and he were answered, then I think he should be allowed to to seek to seek um, renewal or not renewal, seek redemption among this society. Well, then tell if me this, Sharon. In whose community yeah. should he be allowed that second chance? Should it be in your community? I have in my home. You I would have him, him in your house. Even though he I murdered his parents, murdered two of his classmates, um, tried to murder a cop, 
tried to murder the cops who he knew would come to his, his parents' home to investigate the killings he'd committed by planting bombs, and you think he's all better now? I don't, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, after, he was a young kid, he was 16 when he did all this, and yes, it's wrong, but if you looked at stuff I did at 16 and tipped, 25 years did you kill anybody when you were 16, Sharon? I mean, it's a personal question, but did you kill anybody? Um, not on purpose. Not on, you, not not on purpose? Did you kill somebody not that. on purpose? Now you've intrigued no. me. There's a few, there's a few well, times. I'm just, I'm just you know, asking. Who, so do, when I'm we let him out and say we're going to give him a chance, as you said at the beginning, a chance to, and then if he kills again, we say, oh, must have been the wrong time to let him out. We put him back in? You know, there's lots of people who run around and done things wrong, who drive drunk wrong. That, I'm not asking about they... that. I'm saying, how, how would you explain to the family member who gets murdered by a released Kip Kinkle when you say, well, we thought he was better. Turns out he's not our bad. It, what would I'm you say to the family? And I agree. It's wrong. And it, I'm not saying that he should. I'm not saying that You are not. saying he should be out, are you not? No, what I'm saying is he should be given a chance to looked at to see if he's made any change at all because if you just you're, well you're here's the, pro the problem with that Sharon, wrong, no but can i point out a problem with that most of the sure. people who are in prison are well behaved some of them are not but most of them are well behaved and you know why because if you're in prison and you are not well behaved if you try to stab people or, or commit other crimes there are immediate consequences that can come down on your head and they do so when you have somebody in that controlled an environment, when you're told to, when to get up, where to go, where you can go, where you can't go, what you can do, what you can't do, and then you take that person and you put them out in the community where there are no none of those controls on them, how do you know how they're going to react when, when you don't have any idea? And the only way to find out is put the community at risk. I'm not saying none of them are free with no, 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 tape, no tethers on them. You know, well, what tether would you put on him that would control somebody who organized the killing of his mother, his father, people at his school, uh, a, an attempt to bomb cops who would then come to his house and attempt to stab a sheriff's deputy? What kind of control would you put on him? A muzzle and a leash? I mean, do him up like Hannibal Lecter on a hand truck? You know, you, there's lots you can, there's a lot of places you can put people that are very, very well. Well, tell me, give me one example, Sharon, of something you could do if you release a cold-blooded killer to the community. How do you keep track of him so he doesn't murder anybody else? You put somebody else in charge of him, and you slowly you what? Work, I'm not saying you are free right first day off. Well, no, and tell but me how you would control him. A f full-time babysitter. So there's times where no, there's kids, there are people out there who live in their houses during the day and go back to jail at night. Okay, that was interesting, uh, Sharon. You're you're one of the most unique naysayers I've ever had. It's a Tuesday. It's the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars. Quiet, please, ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big show? Right. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live. And now. Then we're going to 
kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and it's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I think even my friend Lee Finna at the Washington Policy Center, who specializes in education, will get a kick out of this. Lee, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Lars. Great to talk with you again. Before we talk about Bellevue and other fancy places, let me tell you this. They've resolved the teacher strike. The teachers get more money. The, t the students don't get anything new or different at all, and they're likely to get the same outcomes. But the governor of Oregon, Tina Kotek, uh, and this is his headline, is Governor Kotek outlines next steps following resolution of the PPS strike. Before we get to Bellevue, she uh, talks about mm -hmm. the importance of the strike and blah -de blah And what's her three-point plan? One. Develop a statewide action plan with the help of a multidisciplinary group of leaders to support the social, <laughs> emotional health needs of students oh. in schools. No, I kid you not. I couldn't write it. If I was writing for Babylon oh. B, I couldn't write better than this. It's a bunch of gobbledygook about we're going to support their social, emotional health needs. How about their education? Well, maybe it's in point two. No, point two is partner with the legislature to establish minimum teacher salaries and review funding. Oh, okay, so where, when do we get to the education part? Number three, create the Office of Transparency within the Oregon Department of Education to make budget information that the state already collects more accessible and easier to understand. So the governor puts out a press release after a teacher strike in which the kids got hurt, the union benefited, the taxpayers got screwed, the school district got screwed, parents got screwed, the kids get screwed, the, the, the union members made out like bandits, bandits, and what does the governor say? We got to go down and make sure that minimum salaries are okay, but not nothing about about actually teaching the kids what they need to know. No, it's nothing. so interesting because this nothing. I mean, this is classic. This is exactly what happens when one interest group has too much power, too much yeah. power. She's she's beholden to those union people that elected her. So she's just and notice this: the schools have lost enrollment, right? So yep. what are they concerned about? They are concerned that they're going to have to cut staff, and that means fewer union members. So yep. they've come up with a whole new need, which is we have to hire mental health counselors for the schools. We have to do all this social and emotional. They're basically making school the provision of social services that they just imagine. You know, there's no demand, no need, no demonstrated evidence that this that the children, you know, are are falling apart because they have mental health care problems. And if they did, it's not the state to correct them; it's the families' problem to fix it, not the state. Anyway, so they're creating a whole new. Uh, that's it's happening in Washington State too. They they well, want leave, to hire leave. more. People. I got to tell you, out in the real world, I can't tell you the number of times when I've had a promotion you know, over the years in TV and radio. When my new, mm -hmm. I, and I don't fault my bosses over the years for saying, hey, Lars, now that we're paying you this new salary with this new position and everything else, <laughs> no, they, yeah. they literally say, you're going to need to yes. show us that you're worth it. And I say, absolutely, yeah. I'm going to show you I'm worth 20% more than you're paying me. You know, yes, because exactly. that's the natural relationship. She could have said, Tina Kotek could have said, hey, now that we're paying these teachers, tens of millions of dollars more 
Maybe we'll have to see if they could actually teach a few more kids and we could require reading, writing, and arithmetic for a diploma, which wow. they don't require now. She could have said that, but that, oh, her union friends would not have liked that at all. No. And, of course, they, the teachers enjoy tenure, so they can't be fired. And so you have a certain percentage, of, not all. Obviously, you know, most teachers are average. Some are really great. But there are a few that are really bad and should not be in the class. I mean, you think for all the money we're handing over and additional salaries, we could just get rid of that low five, the lowest 5% because the research shows that if you do that, you can really improve the overall quality of education that the school delivers because one teacher can really harm uh, the, you know, one classroom over, you know, one bad apple in a school is very destructive to the education of children. So, and we should and, be able to get that. not only that, that I want no, you to no. tell my audience what you did to try to prep members of the Bellevue, Bellevue huh. School Board. Well, I was in a conference that was uh, organized by the Pacific Research Institute, another think tank, right before uh, Thanksgiving, and the conference was aimed at newly elected school board members. A lot of them were conservatives because we've won a lot of control. Conservatives have won control of many school districts up here in Washington State now, and uh, we wanted just to pre present them the facts about uh, school funding because we know that there's an organization that, that, that when they're elected, they're invited to go to a conference by run by the Washington State School Directors Association, which is in, sh in a shorthand for radio, it's basically been co-opted co by the union. And these school board directors that are elected are go to this conference, and they're the first thing they're told is the schools don't have enough money. All right, it's just yep. a falsehood. It's a false narrative that is pushed by all the interest groups that are beholden to the union, including the Washington State School Directors Association. So we were able to like. Uh, inform a few people uh, as they were going into their responsibility as school board directors about the actual facts. And, you know, it's not that hard to put up a graph showing uh, what's happened in Washington State. In the last 12 years, the per-student funding has gone from $10,000 per student 10 years ago to $19,000 per student in 2022-23, and it's going to go up another 1000 probably this year. So we're at $20,000 per student on average statewide, and the Washington School Directors Association says it's not enough money. And the WAA union says, oh, we have to close the schools. Well, they have given such big pay raises to the existing people that they do have to fire people, okay? I mean, it's, it's so and, outrageous. And by the way, can, can we manage. point out to people something I think a lot of parents may not know? When they have to riff reduction in force, when they have to fire people, they fire it based on how the union outlines it. What the union says uh, in every contract I've ever seen says first or last hired, first fired, meaning yeah. you could have the smartest, brightest young man or woman who's been teaching right. for five years. And if they are the most recently hired, they get fired. And you say, well, hold on, who stays? You say, well, you got some teacher who's watching the clock toward retirement. Some of them are. And they've been there 25 or 30 years. They get to stay. And you say, well, what if you're firing the best teacher in the building and you're keeping on either an average or sub-average teacher? And you say, well, that's often what happens, but that's what the contract says we have to do. So when they have to fire people, sometimes they're firing the best and keeping the worst. 
Absolutely. That's the policy here in Washington State. And this is something that could be ended with a line item. We're going to repeal the seniority-based RIF system that we have in the public school system. It is so destructive. The best young teachers are fired first. And by the way, let's not forget that only about half of the employees in the schools are <laughs> teachers. So, if, <laughs> so oh, in if, Portland, it's less than half. It's 8,700 total employees, 3,700 teachers. So in other words, you've got 5,000 people who are either pushing a broom or pushing paper one way or the other, yeah. or pretty much that's it. That's Leave Finna. She heads up the Center for Education at the Washington Policy Center. Leave, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And coming up in a moment, the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, would you believe he managed to take one of Ronald Reagan's most famous quotes about the danger of government and turn it into Ronald Reagan endorsing government. Unbelievable. We'll get to that coming up next. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. You know, we're going to set a follow-up call with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as, uh, as President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. We're from the government and we're here to help. That is Miguel Cardona. And you would not think, I mean, at least I wouldn't think on paper, that the Secretary of Education for the United States of America, that's his current job for Joe Biden, is Secretary of Education, would be such a dummy. But apparently he is. And I want you to hear exactly what he said, because he managed to take one of Ronald Reagan's most famous quotations, change it, leave a big part of it off, and then flip the entire meaning 180 deg degrees. So take a listen again to exactly what Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona said in that soundbite. You know... We're going to set up follow-up calls with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as uh, I think it was President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. Yeah. Now, Reagan said part of that, but along with something else. But first, before I explain that, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails on this Tuesday. It's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find a brand new question every day at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. But let me get back to what Cardona said. Here's Cardona, and that was from a meeting earlier this month in Wyoming, and he was talking to Western governors. He said, we're going to be calling all the governors because we're from the government, as Ronald Reagan said, and we're here to help. Except that's not what Ronald Reagan said, nor what he meant. Miguel Cardona is saying, you see, the government, we're here to help you. And for all of us conservatives, the actual quote is very memorable. Here's what Reagan actually said, and I've got the quote down tight. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. What Ronald Reagan was saying was, 
Anytime the government shows up to help you, you know you are in big trouble because the government usually doesn't help things. In fact, one of the sound bites we run regularly on this show as part of the breaks when we come back from commercial breaks is Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and, and what he's talking about is the fact that uh, the government isn't the solution to the problem. The government is the problem. Now, that's what Reagan actually believed. But here you've got the Secretary of Education for Joe Biden saying, you see, we're from the government and we're here to help. Like he has not the first clue what Reagan was talking about, and yet he actually brings it up and, and references Reagan as though Ronald Reagan thought that the answer was government. You know, and, and he apparently just doesn't have a clue. Now, isn't that nice to know that an agency that will cost America in the next 10 years one trillion of your tax dollars? I'm not exaggerating. That's the actual budget. The United States Department of Education, assuming that Joe Biden doesn't expand it dramatically, is going to cost all of us one trillion dollars over the next 10 years. And he actually believes that Ronald Reagan thought that government was part of the solution to the problem and that we should be glad to hear when the government shows up and says we're here to help. Speaking of not helping, I want to play the soundbite from Joe Biden talking about the victories that he's won when it comes to Thanksgiving. Take a listen to that. Well, this past week, as Americans gathered around their own kitchen tables for Thanksgiving dinner, that was our goal, <clears throat> to give them a little more breathing room. And together, we made progress. You know, uh, from Turkey to air travel to tank of gas, costs went down. No, went down. They, they have not gone down. What's happened is the rate of increase called inflation is not going up as fast as it once did. But the fact is, is that Joe Biden seems to think that having driven costs to the sky a year ago in 2022, that somehow things are getting better now, that we've got lower costs. Well, the problem is that uh, wages in real terms, when you take wages minus inflation, most American families are, are earning less spendable cash today than they did the day that Joe Biden took office. Because while the numbers in the wages have gone up, Inflation has gone up so much more than raises have gone up that people are actually making less money in terms of what they can buy for that. He says, we know that prices are still too high for many things and times are tough. We've made progress, but we have more work to do. And of course, President Biden's mouthpiece, who makes almost $200,000 a year, Karine Jean-Pierre, is right out there singing the same song as her boss. Take a listen. Uh, this holiday season, families are seeing lower prices on everyday items from gas to groceries. As holiday as holiday shopping starts, shelves are stocked and prices prices for toys, TVs, and used vehicles are all down from last year. And we just saw record Black Friday sales. Now she's saying that prices are down. Let me point out to you: rent is up, mortgages are up, the cost of housing if you're buying a house is up. The cost of a mortgage is now about double what it was the day her boss took the oath of office. It was 3% or just under when Joe Biden took that oath. It is now, even though it's come down a bit from its high a couple of months ago, the cost of mortgages in terms of interest on your mortgage is more than double what it was when Joe Biden took over. And yet she's not saying, look, the cost of all these things are down. And in fact, overall consumer spending, when you include rent or mortgage and you include the cost of energy, electricity is up, natural gas is up, gasoline is 80 cents a gallon higher than the day that Joe Biden took office. And inflation 
while it's come down from the Biden high about a year and a half ago, it's still high. It's well into the 3% range, which is 50% higher than it was the day that Joe Biden took the oath of office. And yet, somehow she says, no, 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 things are looking great. And so does Joe, as though they can lie their way to next November. Let's go to uh, Ron. Hey, Ron, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. You wanted to talk about gun laws in Maryland? What's going on? Well, first of all, they can lie about everything and get away with it because they seem to be there, Lars. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm a little... I'm a little perplexed here. Uh, I, I don't know what the Democrat Party isn't lying about anymore. Um, everything that they do seems to be based on a fraud. I get this thing this morning saying that the uh, police have determined that they're going to keep enforcing draconian handgun laws that the courts already deemed unconstitutional. Then you know that sounds a lot like armed robbery, Lars. Um, I didn't know you could just make up your own laws and rules uh, on enforcing laws. I didn't either. And, and you notice, Ron, notice the difference. The day, the very day that the Supreme Court ruled and enforced gay marriage in America, which 30 states had taken votes on and said no to, but the U.S. Supreme Court said, we're going to create nationwide gay marriage. There were county clerks all over America that were handing out marriage licenses that very day. And what you're pointing out is the Supreme Court has found that Maryland's restrictions on gun ownership were unconstitutional. And then you have what amounts to the deep state, the police agency, saying, well, we don't care if they're unconstitutional. We're going to keep on enforcing the rules against gun ownership in Maryland, even though the Supreme Court has said it's unconstitutional. So somehow it always works one way for left-wing issues and works in an entirely different way way when it comes to conservative issues well i have a very interesting video i'm going to be sending you this week uh you probably don't know about it there was a individual that ran from law enforcement uh he claimed that they didn't have any authority to pull him over of course you know law enforcement went through their typical procedures oh no this was a valid stop come to find out through the court the judge already said no it was not a valid stop and they dropped the charges on this guy Unbelievable. Ron, thanks a lot for the call. Thanks for listening. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Even from the back of his truck, Buddy Brown is preaching truth. Because we're from the government and we're here to help. We lie to your face, act like you don't have a clue. We're living in D.C. We're called the Ministry of Truth. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. i got to tell you something. I loved history and I loved social studies and civics, but that was back in the day. These days, you will be told by teachers and public education, that is the education that's run, not very well run, but run all the same by government. And never forget that public schools, we call them public schools, they are government schools. And why is that important? Because the teachers who teach in them, for the most part unionized teachers, will tell you all day long that they've got time to teach your kids about transgender, about LGBTQ, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that they have plenty of time to tell your kids if you have white skin, you're an oppressor, if you have brown or black skin, that you are the oppressed, uh, and all this other nonsense that they shove at kids. But apparently, they don't have a lot of time to teach your kids about actual American history and world history and civics. And I thought we'd discuss that with Jamie Gass, who's director of the Pioneer Institute Center for School Reform. Jamie, welcome to the program. 
Lord, thanks for having me on. So am I, uh, have I got any of that inaccurate? Uh, did, did I properly state the idea that, that we've got a lot of kids who are coming out of public school who don't seem to know what, what, what's going on when it comes to government? No, you're exactly right. I mean, the whole point of education in this country going back to the founding year is really the founders' vision of what education and citizenship look like is, is that schools would perpetuate the principles of our Republican form of government. And, you know, the reality is we were pretty good at it for a while, but in recent decades, the it's all been kind of shunted aside and, the, and in favor of a lot of heavy political agendas and a lot of other things that don't have much to do with making sure kids are prepared for civic participation. And it's funny because, Jamie, I notice this on almost a daily basis. I mean, God bless the people who listen to my show. I'm glad they do. And I, I wouldn't insult them, but I'll have people call up and say, why, we need to fix schools. We should have the Congress do that. And I say, well, you know, for the most part, the Congress has nothing to do with education. They they pump in maybe 10% of the budget in various places in America. But but for the most part, they don't call the shots. And and they'll seem perplexed by that. And I've had I have people put on a local basis say, well, the state should take care of that. And I said, no, that's a city or county function. And you say, well, okay, so how much difference does it make if they don't know what part of government uh, does what job? I said, well, it's kind of a big problem because if you don't realize who's supposed to be fixing the problem, then how do you get a problem fixed when you don't know who to hold responsible would you mind giving my audience some of the, the statistical stuff that you've determined at the Pioneer Institute about what people, and especially young people, actually know about the government and how it works? No, it's so true. It's one of the reasons why we launched this book, Restoring the City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools, because the fact is, is that for many, many decades, as poorly as our public schools seem to be doing in, in comparison to international competition in math and science, we do even worse in terms of uh, translating and having kids, young people know the basics of civics and history. And I think you're right. A lot of people assume that these are the kinds of topics about the founding documents, the founding fathers, the Civil War, Lincoln, uh, two world wars, the Cold War, civil rights. They assume that these things are being taught. But the fact is that they're not. And they haven't for, been for a long time. And the whole reason why you want to have a country that's based on principles uh, like federalism, which is, of course, where the, the rubber hits the road in terms of education. It's all at the state and local and parental level. In order for people to understand that, they have to have the vocabulary of, of our Republican form of government. And, you know, it, it's leading to an enormous amount of misunderstanding of what the federal government does, what state governments, what local government is supposed to do. But the fact is, is that students and even adults need to be taught even in massachusetts so massachusetts is a pretty wealthy state uh it's a pretty well educated state we did a poll just you know, about a month or so ago that where uh, essentially uh, uh huge portions of the population and they essentially got a d didn't even know that the you know there was a that there's 100 u.s senators or uh, these basic uh elements of checks and balances so you know, the fact is, is that we've gotten some things right in Massachusetts, but the, the, the reality of it is, is that across the country, there's just a great deal of misunderstanding about the basics of what government does, what it's supposed to do, what it's, what it's limited and prevented from doing. And I think that's why this topic is just enormously important. Well, and, and when it comes to then it allows people in government 
who who are so inclined, especially elected officials, to get away with murder. Because an elected official can say, well, you know, Donald Trump blew up the budget. And I and I have to remind people, no, well, Trump may have signed off on the budget, but uh, but the Congress passes the spending plan. And they say, well, Trump can veto it. And I said he, he can and he can shut the government down. And that usually works for 10 or 20 or 30 days at most. And, and then it goes on as as before. So if you want to blame somebody, blame the Congress, except the Congress, all the members are happy to have somebody else take the blame for it. So you get politicians saying, you know, that this president or that president outspent the budget or, you know, spent too much. You say they don't the presidents don't spend anything. They can say yes. They can say no. But even when they say no, they don't have much power to say no, because after a while, about 10 days of government shutdown and everybody's, you know, agitating to, to get a budget in place. And so who spends the money? The Congress spends the money. But if you don't understand that and members of Congress are happy to have people not understand that because then they don't get the blame. No, it's so true, and I think you you see this in the in states uh, all over the country. Is is that it's it's not just the federal level. The a lot of governors, a lot of state legislators, they're not providing much leadership uh, at the state and local level about making sure that kids know the the fundamentals of our constitution or the founding documents or you know uh, why someone like MLK drew from the founding documents even to make arguments about civil rights. I mean, there's. There's just, uh, Ronald Reagan said it, you know, it's like the loss of liberty is just one generation away, and all you have to do is not teach people about their rights, and it becomes a lot easier to take those rights away. Well, in fact, uh, my favorite part of the dream speech is not the part that gets played once a year. You know, it's it's a nice part of the speech, but my favorite part is when he referenced, uh, you know, we've come here to enforce a contract, and the contract is the Constitution, and it's a contract between the government and the people. And I appreciated the fact that MLK, who was at heart a conservative, uh, although he's cast as a liberal by liberals these days, um, he saw that as this is a contract, and it can be enforced, and we can tell the government, this is what you have a right to do, these are the things you don't have a right to do, and he viewed it that way. I'm wondering, when you've got, you know, the survey results you showed, Fewer than half of Americans can name the three branches of government, executive, judicial, and legislative. A quarter can't name any branch of government. Two out of three Americans can't pass a citizenship test. They're never going to under, if they don't know those basics, how are they ever going to understand the idea that government has limited and enumerated powers at the federal level? Everything else goes to the state level. No, it's, it really is true. In that poll that we did in Massachusetts, we used citizenship uh, questions, uh, citizenship uh, exam questions, and it was—it's amazing. I mean, it, you know, these are things that these are topics that ninety percent or or higher of uh, in, incoming immigrants can pass, but that many people can't. And it's it's really kind of a startling development because the fact is is that it's we've been we've been observing this slowly slowly for for years and i think for people it's starting to get real that if you don't pass on these fundamental uh principles and the fundamental elements of history i mean not to mention things like uh world wars understanding <laughs> military history understanding who blackjack pershing was or understand who george general george marshall or or uh, dwight eisenhower was and
That's Jamie Gass. He is the director of the Pioneer Institute Center for School Reform. The book is called Restoring the City on the Hill. Jamie, thank you very much for the time. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. daily and so does denzel if you don't read the newspaper you're uninformed if you do read it you're misinformed and tell the truth not just to be first but to tell the truth oh and this one anything you practice you'll get good at including bs more truth now this is the lars larson show just give me some truth welcome back to the lars larson show it's a tuesday and your phone calls are welcome but i want to do something here i don't normally do but I want to talk about one of my past employers, and that would be KPTV, which is the Fox News television affiliate in the Portland metro. And uh, I was proud that I worked there. We did a lot of good work there. But these days, it seems their newsroom has a whole new set of rules that it operates by. And I've actually reached out to the people involved, the news director there. I've reached out to the reporter who I have a question about. And here's how I would frame that question. Would you trust a Muslim TV news reporter who wears her religion and her identity on her sleeve to cover stories about a Muslim terrorist organization, in this case Hamas, the people it represents and the hostages it has taken. Now, why am I asking the question that way? You know, whether you know this or not, and I know you're free to trust or distrust media, including me, if you choose to. That's okay. I don't mind if people call me up and say, how do you know this? Or can you back this up? Or do you have a dog in the fight? You might notice that on a regular basis when I'm about to talk about, say, guns, but I am pro-Second Amendment and a gun owner, I disclose that so you know what my bias is. So I saw this story over the weekend, and what it had to do with was people in America, in this case in the Portland metro, who are advocating for a ceasefire in uh, what they insist on calling Palestine, meaning Israel, uh, because it's not Palestine. Palestine never existed as a state, doesn't exist today, probably never will exist, because uh, the Palestinians have always turned down every single offer, about a half a dozen of them, to have their own country. They've always said no. No, we want the Jews dead and gone. Uh, that will make us happy. Having our own country is not what we want. So I see this story, and it has to do with, you know, how people here are advocating for a ceasefire, which only works to the benefit of the terrorist organization. In other words, the terrorist organization strikes, it slaughters people, it's holding hostages. And yet KPTV, the Channel 12, the Fox affiliate, says Portlanders echo calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. And it goes on to talk very sympathetically. It's been over a month since violence sparked up in Israel and Palestine, a place that doesn't exist, with the health ministry in Gaza, which is a part of Israel, reporting that they lost the ability to count Palestinian deaths. It goes blah 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 on and on and on about how we should feel sorry for the so-called Palestinians. So I put up a post over the Thanksgiving weekend. And I said, you've got to explain to us this Amal Elhu, or Elhel, uh, who is a young lady. She's a reporter. Now, on her social media, she sports an Arabic signature featuring not the flag of the United States, but the flag of Egypt, a Muslim nation that is unfriendly to Christians. And you say, well, why would she do that? Is she, 
Is she Arabic? No. Is she uh, Muslim? Yes. Uh, is she from Egypt? She is the daughter of a woman who emigrated from Egypt, but she's not from Egypt. She's an American. Why is a self-described, and this is how Amal Elhel describes herself, a hijab journalist? Now, I, I got a problem with that because when I was working in TV news, before I went into opinion as my full-time profession, I kept my own personal biases out of stories. In fact, there were times I'd tell the assignment desk, don't put me on that story. It involves somebody I know, a friend of mine. I don't want to be covering a story in which I'll be accused of being biased, either in favor of something or against something. But this young lady wears her, I guess, religious identity on her head. She calls herself a hijab journalist and has this Arabic signature on social media. She puts up the flag of Egypt, a country that she has no connection to, other than that her mother was an Egyptian and emigrated to the United States. She's an American. The story describes the pre-planned 10-7, October 7th, terrorist slaughter as violence sparked back up. Almost sounds like when Representative Ilhan Omar said about 9-11, some people did some things. The story refers to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Well, Gaza and the West Bank of the Jordan River sit on Israel. So who's occupying who? And the refugees kicked out of Jordan, who now called themselves Palestinians, occupy the land that they don't own. And then as I look further into this young lady's background, it seems that she's been doing this kind of thing for a while. In fact, about a year ago, she did a story at uh, Portland State University where there was a rally for an event the Palestinians call Nakba. Now, Nakba is described as the destruction of Palestine. No, it actually was the creation of the state of Israel. But the story never bothers to explain that and say, you see, the Palestinians say that when Israel was created, Palestine was wiped out. It didn't exist as a country. So you've got somebody who's biased. So I wrote to her boss, uh, Passan, Chris Passan, who's the news director. I said, care to come on the radio this week and explain why reporters with a publicly stated bias are covering stories and are you suggesting that editorial corrections in the newsroom will do the trick? I was the managing editor at KPTV News, uh, 96 through 98. How can you correct for the inbuilt bias of a Muslim reporter who has publicly stated, I'm not proud to be an American, covering a story about Muslim terrorism? And he wrote back to me, Chris did, and said, stories we produce go through an editorial process and we support the, the work of all journalists here at KPTV. So apparently in the modern media age, if you're KPTV or other stations that operate this way, you can put somebody on a story who has a dog in the fight, who is a Muslim, who is pro-Palestinian, and have her cover the story and pass it off as just regular journalism. I'd love to talk to the journalist herself, and I've invited her. I won't hold my breath. The Lars... If so, in exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars... This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. And now. Then we're going to...
to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. In full transparency, am I pro-Second Amendment? Yep. Do I own guns? Yep. Do I believe in the right to carry a gun, keep a gun, all of that good stuff? Yep, I do. So if you want to factor that in, I have a bias in the following subject. But when it comes to Measure 114, I no longer live in the state of Oregon, but because I buy from gun stores in the state of Oregon, I'm affected by what Measure 114 attempted to do, which was effectively make it illegal for any citizen to be able to buy any gun whatsoever. Now, I know that there are people behind Measure 114 saying, no, we just want to make you go and get a permit to be able to buy a gun. Not to carry one, just to be able to buy the gun. You have to go and take a class, pass a test, uh, apply for, do a background check, the whole nine yards, just to be able to buy a gun. And I thought that was unconstitutional. Unfortunately, last week we found out that the state-level judge also agreed and said, yep, it's unconstitutional under the state constitution. So I wanted to talk about that with Sam Paradis, who's the spokesman for Gun Owners of America and their sister organization, the Gun Owners Foundation. He also serves as executive director of Gun Owners of California. Sam, welcome back to the program. Lars, it's always a pleasure to be with you, man. It's always provocative. Always the truth, man. So well, we try. We, we try, Sam. And, and if I'm not provocative, I'll get a naysayer who will call up and say you're completely wrong. But, you know, there have been lots of cases in lots of states, and we've seen a bunch of federal decisions, including Maryland and mm -hmm. some other states where the Supreme Court has even weighed in. But state-level decisions like this don't happen very often, do they? No, they don't, actually. Uh, it just so happens that because the state of Oregon had a provision within their own state constitution protecting the right to keep and bear arms uh, for lawful citizens, um, it prevented them from doing what they could do. So what's this going to mean? Where, where does... We don't have that kind of a proof. And, and, and that kind of surprised me because, you know, it's funny, Sam, uh, years and years ago I had I was talking to a constitutional expert, and he said, Lars, you got to understand, mm -hmm. the federal constitution is pretty spare. It's it's pretty thin. I mean, you know, it it doesn't have uh, it. It talks more broad topics. He said you ought to read state constitutions, and after that, I did. State constitutions are incredibly detailed. They'll get down to you have a right to carry a knife, and you have a right to do this, and you have a right to do that, and they're 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 documents that are far more complicated, but a lot more detailed than the federal constitution. California has no constitutional protection in its state constitution for gun ownership. That is correct. Um, here in California, we have to um, rely on the federal Second Amendment in order to protect our, our Second Amendment rights. So the legislature here and the governor, they believe that they have uh, every right and all the power to control guns in every which way they can. And they basically flip the middle finger to the Supreme Court and the federal Constitution. So that's why we're here fighting every day. That's why we fought in Oregon against uh, Measure 114, and we'll fight all across the country whenever any local government, any state government um, uh, tries to infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. Well, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I've been told by some of the people who follow this stuff and know the law better than I, or know the mm -hmm. Constitution better than I do, they kind of expect that even though the state 
level judge, the circuit judge, said it's unconstitutional, that somehow they're fully expecting that when it gets, it gets to the, uh, the, the appeals courts and, and even the state Supreme Court, that they'll figure out some way to say, no, it's not, and, and kill the law any, or, or uphold the law anyway. Do you, would you agree with that? Well, the naysayers aren't paying a lot, uh, very close attention to what actually happened with this measure. Um, judge Ratio, the, the lowest level judge in the lowest level court issued a restraining order preventing M114 from going into effect. It was appealed to the appellate court and then all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, uh, the, the, the restraining order is in effect. Now they don't issue uh, and agree on restraining orders that are issued uh, unless there is a high probability of winning the case in court. So now that we got that ruling from the Supreme Court, it went back down to the uh, court of origin, and uh, the judge actually did the merits portion of the case where he wasn't just issuing a restraining order preventing the law from going into effect. He actually heard the arguments on both sides and ruled that in fact, M-114 is unconstitutional, and unless the citizens of Oregon vote to change their, amend their constitution, it is the law of the land. And, um, and it's backed up by the Supreme Court and, and the U.S. Supreme Court and the, the, the Second Amendment, but they didn't need to go that far because Oregon's uh, right to keep and bear arms provision ruled the day. So and that's where we are right now. Well... The, the other concern that's been expressed to me, and, and I want your take on that, is that while the measure passed by voters by a very small margin, 27,000 votes, mm -hmm. that the state legislature mm -hmm. could say, fine, we'll just pass it as a state law. Now, you would say, and I would say, well, then you'll, they'll just take it back to court and argue that the law is unconstitutional, because that's all that a, a ballot measure does is create a law. But if, if the legislature does it, even if all they do is change a couple of details in it, then doesn't does that start the process all over where to challenge the law, you'll have to take it right back to a court and, and, and demand that they rule the law uh, unconstitutional. That is exactly right. It's, it's, it's two sides to a, the same coin. Uh, whether it's passed by a, an initiative, a ballot initiative like M114, or it's passed statutorily by the state legislature, it's still a statute. And it still comes under the, the, the shadow of the, the constitution of the state of Oregon. So if it's unconstitutional by measure, it's unconstitutional by, by passage of the legislature. So either way, we're going to win. And you know, Lars, the left, the hardcore progressive left that is pushing this kind of gobbledygook, they're going to try everything they can to drag this out as much as possible. They're going to try to bankrupt us. Uh, and take us, make us go to court and challenge them at every uh, uh, at every turn, and because they believe they have a, a, a bottomless pit pocket uh, in the, the form of taxpayers' dollars to to uh, fight the legal fight, and we have to get our resources from lawful citizens who believe in the right to keep and bear arms, and and, and it doesn't matter. People are standing up. We're going to fight uh, the legislature, and and we're going to watch this thing go to fruition. And I think we're going to be victorious. So I'm, I'm very confident and happy with the way things are going with. Uh, well, and I, hope to that, the I hope that in the meantime, system. they haven't destroyed the entire retail industry for guns because it's still operating. But everybody who's in that business knows if one of these laws ever gets passed and then sticks for any length of time, 
you effectively put everybody who's in the gun business out of business. That Sam Paradis, he's spokesman for Gun Owners of America and Gun Owners Foundation and serves as the executive director of Gun Owners of California. Sam, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. We've... Biden's speech or press conference must have C-3PO present. Remember that I am fluent in over six million forms of... What are you telling them? May the force be with you, C-3PO. <laughs> I'm laughing too. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. I, I've got a concern that I want to share with you, and you should understand I'm pro-Donald Trump. Voted for him in 16, voted for him again in 2020, the election he allegedly lost. And we can differ about that all day long, but, you know, it is what it is. I'll be voting for him next year. I'll vote for him in November. I'll vote for him in the primary. But here's the concern I've got. Donald Trump is up against headwinds that even though he has about 57 to 60 percent support to become the Republican nominee, the nominee of the party, the party itself is working against him. Now, when you got this many headwinds, I'm not saying he's going to lose. I don't think that's the case at all. I think he's going to win. I just want you to be aware of the forces that are arrayed against him. And you say, well, of course, Lars, the Democrats are going to run against him. Well, yeah, they are. But they don't have a good candidate of their own. They've got Joe Biden. They're stuck with him. They can't exactly switch to Kamala Harris. Uh, or Kamala Hamas, as we're calling her lately. Um, and, uh, and they don't really have anybody backing them up on the bench. So the Democrats are stuck with bad candidates, and they're up against a candidate who's already effectively nailed down the Republican nomination. So what happens? He's got the media, for the most part, against him. He's got the Democrat Party against him. And he's got the deep state establishment Republican Party against him. Now, I would expect that you would say, well, Lars, make the case that that's what's going on. I'll do just that in just a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question each and every day from the news of the day. And you can find that question two places, on Twitter or X, if you want to call it that, uh, at Lars Larson Show. Or you can find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. So, What's Donald Trump up against? You say it's bad enough that he's got to run against the Democrats, even though at this point the Democrats don't offer much of anything. It's bad enough that the mainstream media, which will fact-check the daylights out of Donald John Trump, even as they ignore the things that both Joe Biden and the idiots within his administration, I mean idiots on education, on the border, on a whole host of other issues, the media will just ignore anything that happens over there. 
But then Trump has another factor that he has to go up against. Now, you've got the establishment Republican Party that sees their apple cart about to get upset by Donald Trump. They realize that when Donald Trump told the rest of us there's a deep state in Washington, D.C., that actually makes the decisions. And it's not your senators, and it's not your representatives, and oftentimes it's not even the president. It is people within the bureaucracy who actually make the decisions. They pass the rules, uh, they, they have the effect of laws, and that's a problem. And he was dismantling that. He also knows where most of the bones are buried, so he knows how to root this out. He needs at least, a, he needs another term, and then he needs somebody to come in behind him for the term after that, and I don't know who that's going to be. But what the establishment Republicans have determined is they don't want Trump any more than the Democrat Party wants Trump. And you say, well, hold on, aren't they conservatives? Well, sort of. I mean, an awful lot of the establishment Republicans are part of this go-along, get-along that a lot of us call the Uniparty. In other words, the Democrats win some elections, the Republicans win some elections, but nothing ever really changes in Washington, D.C. And members of Congress who love keeping their gigs, and I would apply this to both Republicans and Democrats, members of the House of Representatives and the Senate, they love their office, they love having that title, they love having all the power and influence, they just don't love actually doing the job. It'd be like somebody who wants to be a member of an NBA team. But he wants to spend all his time on the bench and let somebody else play the game. That would be hard. There are injuries involved. Why, you guys go out and play the game. I'll just sit here on the bench and collect my check. That, I think, describes too many members of the United States Congress. Well, then who ends up making the decisions? The federal bureaucracy, the EPA, the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, the Education Department, they're carrying all the water. They're the ones going out there saying we're going to indoctrinate kids and that, that sort of thing. So when the establishment Republicans decide we don't like Trump either, he is, according to the polls, going to be absolutely a runaway success in winning the nomination. And then he's going to be a runaway success if he had to run against Joe Biden today. The best polls out there say Trump would beat Biden by nine or ten percentage points a political landslide in conventional terms. You say, well, wouldn't the uh, conservatives like that? They don't like that idea at all. So guess what's happened? You have, in one case, Charles Koch of the Koch brothers. Um, one of them has passed away. But Charles Koch is endorsing the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. Now, I know there are people out there who love Nikki Haley. You know, I'm not as crazy about Nikki Haley because she's right on some things, but she's wrong on far too much. But they see her as the antidote to Trump, even if all she does is act as a spoiler, except that up to this point, she's had a few percentage points gains in the polls, but she's really not doing that well. There isn't a single Republican who's actually shown they have the fortitude, man or woman, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, who can actually beat Trump for the nomination. But what the Republic, the establishment Republicans like Charles Koch want to do is, if necessary, they will destroy Donald Trump because they love their uniparty. They love having that go along, get along with the other side, where every time one side wins an election and the people behind uh, that side, uh, in, the, in the case of Republicans, people like me, we say, what about holding the people responsible who did these terrible things? I mean, ran the debt up. Uh, ignored Benghazi, ignored a lot of things. 
and didn't have anybody held responsible. You're going to have a major scandal in which the Internal Revenue Service is used as a political weapon against the free speech of American citizens. And you say, is anybody going to get prosecuted for that? And then when you see it doesn't happen, whether it's a Republican in the White House or a Democrat, both sides have decided just move along. We've got our power. We've got our influence. Well, lately, the latest thing that's happened is billionaire Charles Koch endorsing Nikki Haley. He wants to give her new support against her Republican rivals in the fight to be the alternative to Donald Trump. The original plan, I think, was to run Ron DeSantis and say, he's the real conservative. You should put him instead of Trump. Except that DeSantis came into the contest with about 30-some percent support to win the nomination. Donald Trump beat him every day of the week. His support has dropped down into the teens. He's not going to win the nomination. So the powers that be in the Republican deep state, the establishment Republican deep state, have said, well, if we can't get DeSantis to beat Trump for the nomination so we can have our guy or our gal in the White House, or at least in the nomination, then we'll back Nikki Haley. They're going to keep trying things, and I want you to be aware of this, so that when somebody says, well, I hear that Ron DeSantis isn't doing that well, he's not. He doesn't show any potential to be able to win the nomination. Well, then we're going to back Nikki Haley instead. In other words, there's an anybody but Trump, ABT. There's an ABT movement, but it's among establishment Republicans who don't care about actually fixing things because the badly damaged system we've got right now benefits them and the people behind them. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails as well. At 866-HEY-LARS, naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I have to admit, I get kind of a kick uh, in a dark way about the fact that Joe Biden is still running around saying, well, everything's great, uh, wages are up, prices are down, isn't, uh, isn't it fantastic? Joe Biden, who's got millions or tens of millions of dollars from his family's criminal activities, and he seems to think that he's done all kinds of favors to Americans, except that Bidenomics and supply chain failures may actually have a fairly Im important impact over the next month. So I thought we'd talk about that with Brandon Arnold, who's executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. Brandon, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what is happening? I, is the White House, is Joe Biden in particular, is his campaign likely to be successful in convincing Americans that they're not living in an absolutely terrible economy and a terrible situation? Yeah, well, uh, that one's hard to answer with a straight face, because uh, we all know whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, we all know what the economy is like these days. We all go to the grocery store. We all go to the gas station, and we see the impacts of Bidenomics each and every day. He keeps trying to put lipstick on a pig, but it is not working no matter how many times he tries it. And now what he's trying to do is, is divert attention to the supply chain. The supply chain obviously has been a mess. Our supply chains have 
been in turmoil since the onset of the pandemic. One of the reasons that, of course, we had this high inflation rate that persists. He made it so much worse early in his administration by pumping trillions of dollars into the economy at the exact wrong time. That's when we saw uh, the inflation really skyrocket. And now he's trying two and a half years later to fix this, of course, with bad policies, with more Bidenomics, with more top-down government-run solutions. And again, it's, it's, it's almost like a punchline. He just keeps trying the same thing over and over and expecting the results somehow to be different. It ain't going to well, work. And an awful lot of what's going on in, in supply chain really does go to the federal government. It, it goes beyond state government. So when you have different rules for, uh, for how uh, goods and services are brought into the United States and then distributed, that's really in the purview of the federal government, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And there are things that the government can do to reduce the friction that we see in supply chains. One of the big things, of course, is reducing energy costs. Time and time again, we see the Biden administration moving in the wrong direction, making oil and gas more expensive with their fingers crossed that somehow alternative energies and electric vehicles and so forth are going to magically become more affordable. We'll drive down that $60,000 electric vehicle SUV down to $20,000, $30,000 so average Americans can actually afford it. You can't just snap your fingers and see that happen. So energy costs, huge, huge factor in the supply chain costs and labor costs, too. Biden is so beholden to labor unions that he's driven up the cost of labor. We've seen so many strikes, whether they are pending strikes in the airlines, whether they're ship dock workers. That was a huge problem, of course, with inflation. Uh, you know, this is the time if you want to go on strike, the UAW as well. If this is the time that if you want to go on strike, you know you're going to have the administration at your back. So now that's the time to lock in these long-term contracts that, of course, raise costs for consumers down the line. Well, and, and Brandon, even at the state level, I, I, I don't want to overstate this, but correct me if I'm wrong. You have a state like California that says we no longer accept uh, that you're an independent operator when it comes to trucks. I mean, they applied it to a lot of professions, uh, to most professions, and said you can't do gig work. So they, they, they throw a giant monkey wrench into the gears of ride share, of package delivery, of all these things. And then you tell the truck drivers, by the way, you have to actually work as a W-2 employee for somebody. So all of a sudden, all these trucks that are available to move things around the country from California's ports, which I think are about 40% of all the, maybe more than that, of the imports on the West Coast. And then you say, but the trucks, to actually haul it away from the West Coast to where it's going, you know, the drivers can't come into the state because they're not independent operators. And then we'll put some limits on the kind of truck you can be driving. Certain trucks aren't even allowed to enter the state of California and literally can be ticketed and parked by the side of the road, told you you can't even move that truck now. And the federal government, you'd think, would have a say-so in that under the Commerce Clause. Say that affects interstate commerce. California, you can regulate whatever you want within your state. But the minute you start to get into interstate commerce, you know, you're getting into an area you are constitutionally forbidden to get into. And all these goods won't move effectively to the rest of the country. And and the federal government has a role in that. And Pete Buttigieg especially, who seems to have done a really terrible job as transportation secretary. Yeah, it's almost comical to have a separate trucking system for California and the rest of the country. But you're right, that's exactly what's materialized. And and obviously that creates ridiculous costs that are passed down once again to consumers because we're the people that always pay for this nonsense. And what the administration ought to be doing, like you said, the Commerce Clause, 
was created was included in the Constitution for this very reason. So you couldn't have states imposing their will on the rest of the country, creating bad laws or, or even good laws, enforcing them onto other states. Uh, so absolutely, that's what the federal government ought to be doing. But instead of striking down California's law or attacking it because it is such an outlier here, they're trying to spread these same policies and force them upon the entire country. And we see that with the all sorts of rules coming out of the Department of Labor, dealing with independent contractors, uh, franchisees. You know, they are trying to adopt a California mentality, which, as you well know, has chased millions of Californians out of the state to Texas, to Arizona, to <laughs> Even Florida. Elon Musk, They're trying to, right? Yeah, exactly. They're trying to force that upon the entirety of the country. It, it is just absolutely ridiculous. And what is Biden going to do? He's going to employ the Defense Production Act to jack up the production of medicine? Are we really in that kind yeah. of bad shape? We're not, we're not in the pandemic anymore. We do have some wars going on that we're financially involved in, but not other than that. And we're going to get in the DPA and say we're going to make companies make more of products that are in demand? Uh, it, it, again, ridiculous. The, 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 the Defense Production Act was created, as its name suggests, to help us in times of national security threats. So we need to turn... Uh, those factories that are making butter into factories making guns in order to protect our national security, we do that. During the, during the pandemic, this was utilized, again, to increase the production of things like ventilators and, and whatnot that hospitals needed. But now there's no threat. The only threat that Biden sees right now is the threat of losing next November. It's just like tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is supposed to be utilized for national security circumstances, major natural disasters, and so forth. He began to tap into that because gas prices were too high and he was taking a hit politically. This is the same philosophy. There's a perception that pharmaceuticals are too high. Let's use the force of government to try to drive down those costs. I don't think it'll work, first of all, but let's try to give people what they want, give them all this free candy heading up into an election. He's hoping that improves his political standing. I'm very skeptical. I think it's just bad policy and bad politics. Well, I think it is, too. And, Brennan, frankly, if wage and price controls actually worked, I, I'm not a fan of them. I want the free market. They would have worked for Nixon, except that was a long time ago. And now Joe Biden is trying to imitate both Nixon and Jimmy Carter at the same time. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, with, with all the respect to our past presidents, failed policies are failed policies. Price controls don't work. He's trying them left and right. He's trying them particularly with regard to pharmaceuticals. We saw that in the Inflation Reduction Act taking this basket of, uh, of products. And, you know, we see the, all the academic research that says the same thing over and over. They, they don't work. History tells us they don't work. What they do is result in fewer medicines. Even his administration mentioned that. When you apply price control on pharmaceutical products, you get fewer new medicines. Absolutely right. That's Brandon Arnold, Executive Vice President of the National Taxpayers Union. Brandon, thanks very much. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Larson Show, we can say with complete confidence that we have no classified documents in our possession. Go ahead, search us. 
This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday, and I'm always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And this segment of the show is brought to you by the home-powered generating folks at ProTech Power. Make sure your loved ones are safe when the power goes out, and it does go out. Probably going to go out more often, thanks to Joe Biden. Call 841, or sorry, 541 Gen. That's 541 Gen. Now, our Twitter poll question today. Should we let teachers organize students in political attacks aimed at the parents in that district? The example is given by the journalism of Matt Margolis, who writes that Seattle middle school teacher leads students in attacking a parents' rights group. The group is called Moms for Liberty, a group that I happen to identify with. On Saturday, Moms for Liberty shared images of a package they received from a Seattle middle school containing letters made during class time by students attacking the parents' rights organization and accusing them of bullying so-called LGBTQ youth. The package included a typed letter from Ann Christensen. I've seen the letter. She is a middle schools and middle school social studies teacher, and she is also the coordinator for what's known as the Gay Straight Alliance. So seems like she's got a dog in the fight. The included letters, according to Matt Margolis, included rainbow-colored messages. Students were given some instructions as to what they would write because many of the letters seemed almost identical. So you've got a teacher who's got a political message that she wants to push out. So she has her class sit down as a class exercise and write these letters attacking a group for its politics. Uh, one of the letters said in pencil, Dear Moms for Liberty, stop bullying and excluding LGBTQ plus youth and families. It hurts people that just want to love who they love and be who they are. The oppressed are always the protagonists. So you've got the words and beliefs of a teacher being pushed out through the, the the handwritten notes created by members of her class. So should we let teachers organize students in political messages attacking a parent's rights group? I would say no to that. You can vote any way you like. Find the question at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. And it's always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, go from the state of Washington to the state of Oregon. In the state of Oregon, there is an active effort to try to keep Donald Trump off the Oregon primary ballot. And the group has written to the current Secretary of State, you know, the one that came in to replace the corrupt former Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, who's apparently working at a Seattle law firm. Why any law firm would put her on the payroll, I don't know. But maybe they had bags of money or something because she was getting a lot of money from folks in the pot business, one particular company called LaModa. So they write to LaVon Griffin Valade, uh, who is the current Secretary of State. And what they're arguing, it's a group called Free Speech for People. Sounds like it was badly named. Uh, with less than two weeks into her term, they write to Griffin Valade in July. In the latest letter, it asks the Secretary of State to respond and indicate whether or not she will issue a temporary rule declaring Donald Trump to be ineligible to appear on ballots in Oregon. And they want this 
within about the next three or four days, by December 1st. Your oath to support the Constitution and the weighty responsibility entrusted to you by Oregon voters as Secretary of State impel you to exclude Mr. Trump's name from the list of qualified candidates. Now, get this. This has been tried in about a half, well, they're trying it in all 50 states, but they've already had rulings in about a half a dozen states in which the Secretary of State, either in blue states or red states, have said, no, we're not knocking Donald Trump off the ballot. I just want you to consider this. No matter whether you like Donald Trump or not, whether you plan to vote for him or not, ask yourself whether there should be people in elective office, like the current Secretary of State, who was appointed to her job, uh, because the, the former Secretary of State got pushed out for corruption, um, that they want her to use the 14th Amendment of the federal Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. And here's what was written in the 14th Amendment, among other things, because the 14th Amendment covers a lot of ground. They wanted to prevent former Confederates from holding federal office after the Civil War. And what it said was, anybody who had previously taken an oath to support the U.S. Constitution, and then, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or gave aid and comfort to the enemies thereof, was prohibited from holding any federal office. And if you're wondering to yourself, well, when did Donald Trump engage in an insurrection or a rebellion against the United States of America? Now, the argument was made that on January the 6th, 2021, when Donald Trump went out on the Capitol lawn, and he gave a speech. I've read the speech. Many of you have as well. I've watched the speech several times. Nothing in that suggested an insurrection. In fact, everything in that speech said to the crowd that was gathered, 50 or 100,000 people, depending on the estimate, said, we're going to go up to Capitol Hill. We're going to peacefully and patriotically let members of Congress know what we have on our mind with regard to the 2020 election. That's what Donald Trump asked for. The FBI concluded that he did not engage in insurrection, and that was, by the way, Joe Biden's FBI. And yet this group says Donald Trump gave a speech, some people rioted at the Capitol, and they demanded an accurate count of an election, and that should disqualify him, if you can believe that. The